All right. So you can turn to the book of Esther. We're not going to start off reading uh, right away in this book, uh, but we will um, get to it. If you need to know where it is, which sometimes it's hard to find some of these, it's just before the book of Job, which is just before the book of Psalms. Um, So we're starting a series in Esther. And so if you want to turn to Esther 1 and uh, just hold there, uh, it'll be wonderful. But uh, one thing is, this time of year I love. I I love this weather. Fall is my favorite. If fall could continue year-round, I'd be happy. I'd be fine never getting in a pool again and having low 70-degree days during the day and 40s at night. Uh, That would be my ideal. Um, But it's also a time when a struggle starts to show up a bit more in my life. And that struggle is fueled by the um, open windows, cool air, and a really comfortable bed. Uh, That struggle is just to get up in the morning. Um, I I often struggle with, uh, you know, hitting the snooze and shoving my phone underneath my pillow hoping I don't hear it again. Um, because I just don't want to get up. It's such a comfortable time. It's, it is a, a real fight sometimes to get out of bed in the morning. And you know what? That makes me think of other struggles that we go through in life. And one of those struggles, one of the more pronounced ones for the believer, is the struggle to, to see the work of God happen in the day-to-day. It's to see his work in, in, in all things, to see and believe that God is con- in control, to, to believe that God is actually the one with power, that he is the one on his throne. I think if we're honest, we can all admit to, to times when, when we, we've gone through a day, or maybe a string of days, or maybe a string of days on top of that string of days, or a week, or a month, without even thinking about God's involvement in our lives or in this world. And in our own lives, very specifically, for the most part, we tend to think in the temporal. We live in this world, and we see the the powers of this world. We see wars. We see disasters. and, And almost immediately, our thought is, how can we fix it? How can we fix it? How can we make the the next choice and and do the next thing? And I I think we tend to to live not necessarily disbelieving in God. We would say we believe in Him, but we probably live in such a way as if God were not really all that involved, if involved at all. One commentator wrote, said, events do seem to be driven by historically explainable forces of politics, economics, psychology, and sociology. Life does seem to be governed by human choices and natural processes. By by most people's accounting, that is simply how the world works. And because it is, it is also easy to understand how many Christians end up being more or less functional deists believing that God exists and is up there, but going about the normal matters of daily life as if he were not really involved much at all. It's like we believe that, that God created everything, and, and like a top that just starts to spin, he spins it, and just he's hands off from there on out. And in light of all that, in light of the, the way our world is pervasive in that thought, the biblical world can seem a bit foreign to us, and I think hard to relate to. 
but honestly, I don't, I don't think our present experience is really any different than that of what is recorded in Scripture. Yeah, sure, I, I know there are some books that the, um, the involvement of God seems much more intimate and, and powerful than what we experience in the day-to-day. You know, I haven't crossed the Red Sea on dry land before. I haven't been led out by a pillar of cloud and fire. Um, you, you know, the, uh, the start of the early church with all the, the extraordinary signs and wonders, I don't see that here and week in and week out. And there are other books where, though, though it's not as dramatic, they, they still clearly show the work of God where the extraordinary almost seems normal. But we live in a time much more akin to a very ordinary working of God, where the outworking of His providence, as we confessed earlier, His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions is a bit more difficult for us to detect, a bit more difficult for us to perceive and see in the day-to-day. And folks, that's why a book like Esther is so vitally important in our lives. Most of us have never had an experience of of God's immediate working that's absolutely indisputable besides salvation. We we don't have that immediate working of we're healed, we were raised from the dead, you know, we were, all those type of things. We haven't had that. Most of us live our day-to-day in a world much like Esther's where what you see around you, all the events, the, the activities, the, the situations, they don't display really any conspicuous work of God. We live in the ordinary, and so it can be a struggle to see God, to even continue to remember Him. And this struggle was the same for those in the time that Scripture was written. They, they forgot about Him. They did not believe or trust in Him. They had let the, the things of this world and everything around them, the, the temporal, cloud their vision of the ever-present eternal. So we need a book like Esther. And I pray this book will be wonderfully used to open our eyes to the daily working of God, which is ironic because it's one of two books in Scripture that never mentions God's name. This and Song of Songs are the two books that never mention the name of God. But the fact is, he is not silent. He is not inactive. And I'm excited to start this series because of that. And as we do, and as we go into it, we're going to pray in just a moment. We're going to look at the the first chapter today. But before we do that, we're going to start into some preliminary matters. So as we get into this, let me begin to pray, or let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for this, and Lord, as we look at not just some background information and other things, but start diving into chapter one, Lord, open our eyes to see the beauty of who you are in the midst of this word. Lord, thank you for it. Be at work in us for your glory and for our good and joy. Christ's name, amen. So we start with what I, what's called prolegomena, and that's just a fancy word. That's a 50-cent word, basically, to say introductory and important matters. It's preliminary information. This is background stuff, but it's all things that will aid us in our interpretation of the book. Now, th- this book does not have 
as clear of answers and definitive answers to some of the questions that we normally ask of a book of Scripture. Um, for example, author. We don't have any idea. There's, there's no one identified. Uh, and looking at the book itself, we can be pretty certain of the character of the author, of, of the the personhood, in a sense, of the author, that they were very familiar with Jewish captivity. They were also familiar with Persia and all the customs of Persia and and intimately acquainted with the capital city of Susa. And some have suggested that Mordecai, one of the main characters of this book, was the author. Personally, I don't find that compelling. Uh, I don't think it was Mordecai. I rather believe that the author was another Jewish exile who lived in Susa and was well acquainted with all that was going on. And this author, whoever it was, wrote with a purpose. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, this author wrote with a purpose to equip the exiles to live as God's people when it wasn't always obvious that God was at work. But yet, the people could trust Him, could trust God to be faithful to His covenant. And then on a kind of a large scale, and in some ways, this book is unapologetic for the Feast of Purim. Um, Without this book, there's really no idea why Purim is celebrated in the Jewish community, so it's an apologetic for that. Now, our next question is, when was this book written? The earliest date would have been sometime in the 5th century B.C., uh, around the time of the actual occurrence of the events. The latest, I think, is is along uh, around the 3rd century B.C., and I would say any time in that time frame is a perfectly good time to say that that was when this book was written. Now, the date itself points to another question that that a lot of folks ask is the historicity of this book. Obviously, it tells of history. It tells of Ahasuerus, and that's how I'm going to pronounce his name, I think, throughout most of this, or Xerxes. Some of you, your translations may say Xerxes, um, who was most certainly, he was a ruler in Persia. The Jews were in exiles. Uh, Those who had been in Judah and Jerusalem were exiled by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonian fame. Uh, They were exiled out of Jerusalem and Judah to Babylon. Um, And this was, in many ways, the fulfillment of a promise of uh, the covenant curses given in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today. Then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. In verse 36, the Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. See, Jerusalem was destroyed as a fulfillment of this covenant curse for their disobedience. The people of God did not follow God. They had become idolaters in many ways. So they were scattered among the nations. And this exile actually shaped um, Judaism. It shaped the nature of Judaism because the people had to learn at that point in time, how do we live as the people of God without the visible presence of God, without the temple? How do we live in a time when we don't see the temple, when what we see, when our eyes look up, we see the capital of Susa, we see the the king's courts and his gardens, we see the Persians or the Babylonians everywhere. They had to learn how to live in, in many ways, with what they saw as the absence of Yahweh. 
But you know what? They were also promised something. Along with this curse of disobedience, Jeremiah relayed a, a promise that they would return to the land. They had something to hang their hopes on. Jeremiah 30, verse 3, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. And then in 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great, uh, the Persian king, conquered the Babylonian Empire. And Cyrus was probably the, the greatest king of that dynasty. He was the founder of that empire. The boundaries of that empire were massive, spanning from uh, modern Pakistan in the east to Turkey and the islands of Greece in the west down to Sudan and northern Africa. It was a massive, massive empire. It was a long-standing empire as well, being dominant until Alexander the Great conquered Persia in 330 B.C. at the Battle of Isis. Now, when Cyrus conquered Babylon, when he took over Babylon, he issued a decree at that time that the Jews could return and re- to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. You can find that in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And the book of Esther then tells us in, in really this beautifully artful manner of the life of the Jews who, for whatever reason, did not return to Jerusalem upon that decree. The Jews who remained behind in Persia. It addresses living in a world where it doesn't seem as though God is all that involved or all that in control. Now, though all that history is accurate, some question still the historicity of this book as a whole. Now, I'm not going to go through all the things that people cite at this point because none of them are without explanation, and I don't want to take all the time to go through it. I hope to address many of those various uh, objections as we go throughout the book. But quite frankly, I would say this book fits perfectly in that time frame surrounding the lives of Zerubbabel, um, who returned to Jerusalem in 537 B.C., and that of Ezra in 458, and all that surrounding time period of the Jews still in exile. Now, I found the comments of one commentator. I really wish I didn't have this mic. Especially helpful at this point. Wrote, when we read the Esther narrative, we must understand it not as if it were a newspaper account from ancient Persia, but as an interpretation of the significance of what happened. Such interpretation must not be thought of as a bad thing that distorts the truth. To the contrary, the interpretive element introduced by the biblical authors, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, explains the true significance of events and makes demands on the reader. For example, history writes, Jesus, called the Christ, died on the cross. Whereas Scripture writes, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Both are true statements, but the second makes a demand on the reader that the first is not. It is precisely the divinely inspired interpretation of what happened that distinguishes Scripture writing from history writing. So as we, as we look at the book of Esther, know that it's, it's interpretive of the events. It is true, and it, makes, it does implicitly make a demand on our lives. Now, further, as we go through this book, I'm going to endeavor to point out some themes that run throughout it. Um, 
things like kingship or feasting, which we're going to see a good bit of today, loyalties that conflict, fasting, even in the midst of the kind of in contrast to the feasting, there's fasting and more. Now, this is not a book that we're going to go through verse by verse. I'm not going to do like Esther 1, 1 through 4 this week or anything like that. It's going to be larger chunks because of the nature of the book. This is not an epistle. This is narrative, and we have to keep that bigger picture in mind. So let's turn now to the text, and let's look at those first nine verses. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces who were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when those days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion." For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So at first, when you read this, you may wonder, how is this in Scripture? This sounds like not much more than a, a, a Persian telling us what went on in the capital. Um, there's boasting of the size of the kingdom. There's 127 provinces. And I will say here, I told you I'd do this. This is one of the first, time, first places that people say, this can't be history. There were never 127 provinces under the Persian reign. There were at most 27 to 30 what they called satrapies. That's a great word for you. It's a satrapy that was ruled by a satrap. Um, so if you were a satrap, you had a big satrapy. But those satrapies, which is not the word used here, the word used here is province, included multiple provinces. So for them to say there were 127 provinces in no way contradicts that there were 27 to 30 satrapies because there could have been many, many provinces inside each one of those that was governed and ruled. So the, the point, though, of this, I think of why the narrator is saying this, is he is starting to lay the groundwork at this point um, for seeing Hashuerus as really the most powerful man on earth. This guy can do what he wants. He rules basically the known world. And he's thrown one heck of a party. Okay, he is, first he's thrown a celebration of 180 days. So that's six months, in case you, some of you aren't math majors. That's six months that, that he threw a party uh, of just showing off his wealth and power. He's just going throughout and saying, hey, look at everything that's mine. And at the end of those 180 days, he decides, well, now let's really party. Let's throw a feast. And so he throws a feast for everybody in the capital, everybody in Susa. 
And it all speaks to the extravagance and the excess and the, the, the indulgence. People are commanded to have no reserve, to have no compulsion in their drinking, which in a sense is actually compulsion, but that's a whole other story. And so the description of the court then that he gives is massively detailed. Uh, of the garden of the king's palace, you know, really only the temple receives this kind of detailed treatment in Scripture other than this. It's, it's kind of setting up a contrast between the temple and here this, that, that it's just so extravagant, it's so beautiful, and it's meant to convey something about the opulence and the strength of this king. He has everything at his fingertips. It's all his. Now think for a moment then about the Jewish exiles. What would they have felt in the sight of all of this? They were weak. They were not in power. They were not in control. They were under the control of this king. His glory was what they saw day after day. They were in exile, and probably their question in some ways, whether it was vocalized or not, was, where's God? Where's Yahweh? Where's the covenant king? Ahasuerus can do anything he wants to do, just partied for 180 days and then threw everybody a massive feast. He's on his throne. He's reigning. He's having a blast. Is God even near his? If so, where's the evidence of this? How were these Jews to even know that God still reigned? Now, they knew their history, or at least they should have known their history. Things like the Exodus and Elijah and the prophets of Baal, this amazing story of Elisha, David. They had hopefully been told of God's work, but in their world, it's not what they witnessed. It's not what they saw. Yeah, they, they saw the Jews return to Jerusalem, but who gave that command? Was it a prophet who said, hey, y'all are going back? No, it was a pagan king who said, hey, y'all are going back. So it's not even from a prophet at that point in time. So just imagine how that would affect your day-to-day living, your outlook on life and faith on God himself. You know what? I don't think it takes much imagination for us to think about that, does it? How different is it really today? How often do we see these conspicuous works of God? How much do we see God in the everyday? We have such a tendency to explain everything away by natural or other occurrences. So, folks, this is the setting. He's setting out how massively larger than life Ahasuerus and the kingdom of Persia is. And then comes a turn in the story. Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, surprisingly, right, he commanded, and I'm not going to read all these guys' names, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. 
So at this point, everyone is pretty well inebriated. Uh, they, though they've had no compulsion, they've been compelled probably. Their hearts are merry with much wine. And the king desired, he's thinking, oh, you know what will make this day? Is I'll bring out the king and let everyone gawk at her. Bring her out in her royal crown and let everybody see the beauty of, of my wife, of my queen, though he never calls her wife once. But she wouldn't do it. Now, we know very little of Vashti, and, and she's not really the point of the story at this, at this point, but this is pretty extraordinary for her to risk her life in this way. Maybe she truly valued her own dignity and wouldn't allow herself to, to be eye candy for a bunch of drunk men. Whatever it was, she refused, and the king utterly lost it. And it's here that the king shows his folly. One, it was foolish to seek to parade the king, ostensibly his wife, around like a trophy. And two, it's also foolish for him to take the next steps that we're going to see of turning this domestic dispute into a kingdom-wide issue. Okay? This king who ruled 127 provinces couldn't rule his own heart. Couldn't rule his own emotions in any way here. So then comes the rest of the story. So let's look at the rest of this chapter. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being those guys, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mimukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will, will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus." And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimikin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people." Okay, so the king seeks advice from the wise men, okay? And the gist of this, the gist of it is, if this gets out, it's going to be bad for all husbands, so we need to issue a royal order, one that cannot be repealed, that no one can take away, that Vashti never comes into the presence of the king again, and that there will be a new queen to take his position, and that every man rules his own household. The irony and the comedy of this is so thick at this point in time. Um, one commentator said, I can imagine that the scribes who wrote this were laughing as they wrote it, as they copied it from scroll to scroll. The advice given to the king was to make a law 
first to command behavior that the king couldn't do in the first place. So he issued, he's issuing a law to say everybody needs to obey, every wife needs to obey her husband, when his wife wouldn't obey his command, but yet he's given a command that everybody needs to do that. That doesn't work. One commentator said the edict deconstructs itself serving merely to publicize throughout the vast empire and in the language of every people group, Ahasuerus' lack of authority in his own household. So he's worried about the rumor mill going. So instead, he issues royal orders and sends them everywhere by courier to say how his wife disobeyed him. Okay? So if it was meant to inspire respect for husbands and respect for Ahasuerus, its actual effect was surely the exact opposite. If he was afraid that the story of his impotence would spread through gossip, now his own edict has done its best to ensure that everyone would hear the story. Once again, at the same time, as we are impressed by Ahasuerus' power, we find it hard to restrain a chuckle as he slams his sledgehammer down on a nut and misses. He's rather incompetent at this point. This guy that rules 127 provinces asks for advice, asks for the law. What does the law say? He's not actually given law. He's not given what he asks. He's just given advice. And then he takes this advice that actually publishes his folly throughout the empire. None of what was actually done serves to remedy the issue at hand. One, because it was much deeper than mere refusal of Queen Vashti to display herself. And so what we see here is that this strong man, this king, is actually pretty weak and foolish. His power is limited, and his actions are directed by an outside force. There's a hidden hand of God in this entire story. He really was nothing more than a puppet king. No matter how powerful he was, he's a puppet king. God is truly the one sitting on his throne and in control even when he appears absent, he is still present. And that is so much of what we need to learn and what I hope we catch throughout this book is in the midst of, um, in some sense, the presence of absence, there is really no absence of his presence. God is there. And so this first chapter sets the tone. And, and we see, not explicitly, but I think very clearly, that the king and the kingdom of Persia paled in comparison to the true king and the kingdom of God. God was at work in Esther's time, absolutely at work in Esther's time. All this is setting the stage for what we, if you've read through Esther, what you know will happen. It's going to be the rescue of God's people all happened set in motion because of the king's foolish command and the queen's refusal. This is not coincidence. This is providence. God was at work then. Folks, God is still at work now. As believers today, we need to be more and more reminded of this truth. God is not absent even when our eyes seem to say that he is. We need eyes to see. And nowhere else did that appear more true beyond 
what we see in Esther than really in the last weeks and months probably of our Savior's life. It certainly looked as if Rome and the enemies of Jesus were in control. From any eyes watching at that point in time, any observer, they would say, this Jesus lost, and so did his followers. That would have been the conclusion. But God was working through that whole situation. In fact, he'd brought it about all from the beginning in order to ensure the redemption of his people. The true king never made a foolish choice, never could not rule his spirit, and he was crucified. But in many ways, that crucifixion was his coronation. It was where he showed himself more and more to be the true king, and he was raised from death to life for our life. He was raised to life in victory, and in him we have the victory. We have forgiveness of sins and his righteous standing before the Father. So much of this makes me think of the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1. Starting in verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. A strong man, Ahasuerus, showed himself to be weak, and the weakness of God prevailed. The weakness of God and the cross ultimately prevailed. And folks, that's what we can rejoice in. And I hope and I pray that our eyes are opened more and more to see the hand of God in the day today. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for your word. Thanks for a book like this. And Lord, use this time that we have. Work in, work in us. Help us to have eyes to see your, your mysterious ways. Give us strength as we go. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.